this nominee is better than Matt Whitaker. Um, but that's like, I mean, so is this coffee cup. Well, it is a nice coffee cup. Just say it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, no, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with From you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also up in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI and Round Mountain on KKRN and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and Cottage Grove on KSO in Eugene on KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Goldendale, Washington on KVGD, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for you on some fine streaming affiliates, including the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for today's hour. Writing for the Independent Media Institute's Deep State Project on Tuesday, Jefferson Morley took a look that I have not seen elsewhere into Donald Trump's Attorney General nominee William Barr's background as Attorney General under George H.W. Bush back in 1991 and prior to that at the Central Intelligence Agency. He, uh, Morley, focuses on a number of disturbing roles that Barr played during his time as Bush's AG to sort of protect the CIA and um, other administration elements. Uh, One of them I want to highlight here since it's received so little attention, even from senators on both sides of the aisle who focused on what Barr's uh, confirmation as AG may mean to the special counsel Robert Mueller's probe. A whole lot and uh, other matters of accountability for this unprecedentedly corrupt and criminal Trump administration. So Morley reports a close examination of Barr's legal career indicates a high tolerance for presidentially sanctioned lawbreaking. In one of the three main examples that Morley cites, he writes, with President Trump reserving the possibility that he might pardon former aides indicted by Mueller, William Barr's handling of the Iran-Contra scandal pardons of 1992 is revealing. 
President George H.W. Bush had been defeated for re-election. Barr, at the time, urged Bush to use his pardon power freely before leaving office. Like Trump today, Bush was under investigation by a special prosecutor that would be Judge Lawrence Walsh for his role in the Iran-Contra conspiracy, which was a complicated scheme to send money in violation of federal law to guerrilla forces in Nicaragua to oppose the Sandinista government at the time with money that was raised by selling arms to Iran in exchange for hostages, which was also in violation of U.S. law. Under criminal investigation at the time by the special prosecutor, Morley writes, were former Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger and two top CIA officials, Claire George and Dewey Claridge. They had all plotted to evade a congressional ban on aid to the counter-revolutionaries in Central America by illegally sending, selling those uh, weapons to Iran. Barr's former employer, the CIA, was in real danger, Morley reports. The trials of George and Claridge promised to be a public relations nightmare or worse. Senator Patrick Moynihan at the time, powerful Democrat from uh, New York and chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, had actually introduced a bill to abolish the CIA entirely. The Cold War was coming to an end and the agency's future was in doubt. In an oral history recalled by Barr himself in 2001 remarks for the University of Virginia, Barr said he urged Bush to pardon the CIA men on the grounds that they were victims of the, quote, criminalization of foreign policy. When it came to pardon power, Barr said he, quote, favored the broadest use of of that presidential power. There were some people arguing just for a Weinberger pardon, he explained in 2001, but he said, no, in for a penny, in for a pound. Bush took his advice. Barr had no respect for the special prosecutor's work at the time and no regrets about consigning it to history. Walsh accused Bush of hiding criminal misconduct, but the former president and aides all escaped justice. And the Iran-Contra scandal slipped quietly away into the pages of history with little or any accountability for Reagan, for Bush, or most of the administration officials involved in a number of illegal acts, many of which shocked the nation's conscience at the time. I recall it. Don't know if listeners do, but I wanted to share that with you. And they got away. Not unlike uh, many of the scandals right now that have shocked the nation, under Trump and his administration. Morley concludes by asking and answering, can President Trump count on the same if Barr is confirmed? Yes, he writes, he almost certainly can. I wasn't able to watch all of the hearings in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday, had a show to do after all, so I don't know if Barr's history of supporting either the CIA or more specifically presidential pardons uh, for corrupt, highly placed administrative uh, administration criminals, whether that came up or not, as uh, much of the hearings focused on how Barr would handle special counsel Robert Mueller's probe, if he would allow it to continue, and if so, would he release any report from the special counsel to the public? 
Barr vowed independence from the White House, that he wouldn't merely serve as Trump's flunky and would allow the Trump-Russia investigation to continue, even though he had been highly critical of it. In a lengthy memo he wrote last year and circulated to folks at the Department of Justice, But Barr declined to commit on a number of key issues that lawmakers asked about, like whether his prior comments on the Mueller probe should lead him to recuse himself from overseeing it and whether he would heed the advice of DOJ ethics officials if they determined that he should recuse due to the conflict of interest presented by his previous opinions published uh, on the investigation. Barr said he believed Mueller, who he described as a longtime good friend, would not carry out a witch hunt, as Trump has repeatedly described the probe. And uh, he said he would resign before taking an order from the president to fire Mueller without good cause. But he equivocated on a number of other issues, even as lawmakers, both Republicans and Democrats, seemed eager to find reason to vote in favor of Barr's confirmation, if only to quickly replace the wildly unqualified, and as many have argued, unlawfully appointed, Matthew Whitaker, the right-wing Fox News talking head and former scam artist that Trump has named as acting attorney general after firing his first AG, Jeff Sessions. But in a piece at Slate.com this week, our friends Dahlia Lithwick and Mark Joseph Stern argue not so fast if Barr does not meet the qualifications for the job at this time, he should not be confirmed merely because, well, because he's not Matt Whitaker. Here to discuss that, as well as a bit of other court news this week, is the great Mark Joseph Stern, who covers law, the court system, and much more for Slate, and not frequently enough for us here on the broadcast. Mark Joseph Stern, Happy New Year, and welcome back, my friend. Happy 2019. Thank you so much for having me back on. Always a pleasure, even in these dark times. Yes, I know. Hoping this year is uh, at least better than 2018. But, you know, speaking of low bars, that's a pretty low one right there. Uh, before we get to the uh, to the William Barr Michigas, uh, let me I wanted to start with some good news from the courts this week, actually, Mark, because we've ha- had quite a bit of that over the past 24 hours or so. Uh, we covered this a bit on yesterday's broadcast, uh, but I want to get your thoughts. The ruling by U.S. District Court uh, Judge Jesse Furman in Manhattan on Tuesday striking down. Treasury Department uh, Secretary Wilbur Ross's instruction to add a uh, question on citizenship to the 2020 U.S. Census, despite career Census Bureau administrators advising against it, uh, warning him that including the question would depress the response rate to the census, particularly in immigrant communities. Uh, And with the judge, as I read it, absolutely slamming uh, Ross's false claim that all of this was being done because the DOJ claimed they needed it for enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Your thoughts on Judge Furman's ruling on Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, by my count, Judge Furman held that uh, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross uh, violated the law by adding the citizenship question in at least six different ways and basically said that each of those uh, violations on their own would have been enough to justify blocking the question. Uh, when you add them all together, it is a sort of symphony of lawlessness uh, that cannot be ignored by the courts. 
Uh, and the main points you really touched on it uh, are that Ross just lied. He lied to Congress. He lied in court filings uh, about why he added this citizenship question. Uh, and it is very clear sort of black letter law that when a federal agency like the Commerce Department wants to take some kind of formal action, it has to give the real and truthful grounds for its decision. It has to justify it truthfully. Uh, and Ross just didn't do that here. You know, the cover story uh, is that the Justice Department sent Ross a letter saying, hey, we need citizenship data in order to better enforce the Voting Rights Act, which, by the way, doesn't make any sense on its face. <laughs> it, it's a totally nonsensical idea. Uh, no one has ever seriously claimed before that uh, you somehow need to have citizenship information uh, in order to prevent discrimination against minority voters. But leaving that aside, uh, Ross cited that letter as his reason for adding the question. And it turns out in emails that were revealed during the course of litigation that it was Ross and his deputies who asked the Justice Department to send him that letter as cover, as pretext for him to then say, oh, well, now I have to add this question. Ross lied, and Judge Furman basically says that in his decision, which is fairly remarkable. You don't often have judges saying that high-level uh, government officials, particularly cabinet secretaries, lied, but that's what we have here. And so what Judge Furman says is, look, there is a world in which uh, the, the federal government could justify adding this question, right? There is nothing in the Constitution that expressly prohibits the federal government from adding this question. But if it wants to do it, it has to do it legally. Mm -hmm. It has to follow the law. And what Ross did here was absolutely and totally unlawful. Mm -hmm. It was it was pretextual, unjustified, and indefensible. Can uh, Ross, who, as you said, uh, the 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 judge called him out for essentially lying and breaking the law, breaking the Administrative Procedures Act, but also lying in his responses to the court, lying even, I think, to Congress. Can Ross be prosecuted for any of that? I mean, uh, we, you know, we've had uh, Michael Cohn and others in recent days have pled guilty to lying to Congress. Is there any uh, possible potential uh, criminal liability here? So in theory, yes, it is pretty clear that Ross perjured himself to Congress. The version of the story that Ross told Congress during his sworn testimony is false. It is demonstrably false. Uh, and a, a particularly ambitious prosecutor could step up and try to uh, charge him with perjury. I think that is almost certainly not going to happen for a lot of reasons, uh, but the main reason is that it would be a political firestorm uh, that prosecutors obviously want to stay far away from. Uh, and it was the kind of perjury which, while obviously consequential, uh, is not often something that prosecutors go after. This was not perjury on the stand at a big criminal trial. Uh, this was uh, a cabinet secretary essentially trying to conceal government misconduct. You know, if I were czar, then I would consider that a priority. But unfortunately, it's just not the kind of thing that I think prosecutors are going to be eager to go after. Well, maybe not. But I'll tell you what, if this had been a Democratic administration <laughs> and he had lied that way to uh, a Republican Congress, they would be referring it, I think, to the DOJ for some sort of prosecution, whether it you know moved 
moved ahead or not, I guess, is another matter. But very quickly, the uh, Supreme Court will be now hearing a separate challenge to this uh added census question uh, next month, and I believe there is also another trial on the same issue currently underway in San Francisco. What effect does Judge Furman's ruling in Manhattan on Tuesday in a case so far successfully brought by, I think, some 10 states, what effect will that have on the Supreme Court hearing in that related challenge next month? Yeah, so the interesting thing is that next month the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear arguments about a very specific question here, not the broader issue of whether this is legal, uh, but whether it is appropriate for the judge, uh, Judge Furman, to order and examine uh, discovery beyond the scope of the administrative record. So, you know, in these cases, the, the Commerce Department will put forth a record of all the information uh, and tangle with the plaintiffs who will try to get more, that is usually the only record uh, that the judge can consider. Here, uh, Judge Furman ordered the deposition of a number of high-ranking officials, including Justice Department official uh, John Gore. Uh, and there is a big kerfuffle about that, and the court is scheduled to hear an argument over whether it is appropriate uh, for the judge to go beyond the record in deciding this case, basically whether there's enough bad faith at hand to justify these, these rather extraordinary measures. Uh, I think that case is now pretty much moot because Judge Furman very cleverly rooted his entire decision in the administrative record mm -hmm. to the extent that he cited any additional evidence that was gathered um, by, by the plaintiffs. He said, this is just the icing on the cake. This is not at the root of my, mm -hmm. of my decision. So I think that Judge Furman sort of neutralized the February arguments. Uh, I would not be surprised if the Supreme Court wound up scrapping those arguments and finding some way to hear arguments on the merits mm. uh, by late April, which will be the end of its uh, oral arguments for this term. So the, the, the most likely outcome, I think, is that the, the Supremes try to hear arguments on the merits of the case in April and then render a decision by June. So despite uh, having struck down this question for the moment, that still could change before June, which I think is uh, actually also the deadline for, for them to start printing up the, the census. This would all have to be sorted out one way or another by then. But you're saying Furman's uh, ruling on Tuesday may not be the last word here. Uh, it will not be the last word. There's no question about that. It's pretty clear to me that the Supreme Court wants to resolve this once and for all. Uh, I think it will be a five to four decision. I have no idea which direction Roberts will go. It is definitely all eyes on the Chief Justice. All right. Uh, a, a case that uh, I was going to say it's a safe bet that almost anything these days will be a five to four decision one way or another. But a case you write about today at Slate also appears to be very good news, at least for American workers. And it was decided unanimously. Uh, you write on Tuesday, the Supreme Court handed a victory to American workers ruling unanimously. Well, that's a phrase you just usually don't hear uh, <laughs> that independent contractors who work in transportation may not be forced into mandata mandatory arbitration. The decision is a remarkable win you write for labor rights from a court that typically favors corporate interests over working people, and it will allow hundreds of thousands of contractors to vindicate their rights in court collectively rather than in costly and unjust arbitration. 
Mark, uh, reading your coverage of this case, it seems like um, the case itself, to me, seems like kind of a no-brainer, which I guess is why the, uh, the worker here won unanimously. But the fact that Frankly, that this case would even be uh, worthy of being heard by the court sort of offers a snapshot of just how far down the road against workers and in favor of corporate interests this nation has become. Uh, What was this case about uh, and what was decided here? Yeah, so this is a case about mandatory arbitration, which is a process by which typically uh, an employer will tell a worker, uh, if, if, I, if I violate your rights or you think I have, you don't get to sue me in federal court. You lose that right. Instead, you're going to have to go to one-on-one arbitration, usually in, or often in Delaware, uh, where the rules favor the employer, where the employer can often pick the forum and the arbitrator uh, and hash things out uh, in this very limited and, I think, unjust setting uh, where you have to do it on your own terms. So if you are a worker who has uh, been, been uh, you know, a victim of wage theft, you've been underpaid $10 uh, a week for three years, ideally you and all of the other workers who experience the same problem would join together and file a class action lawsuit, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Very few lawyers are going to want to represent an individual. It's not going to be worth it. Employers use mandatory arbitration clauses to uh, basically cut the legs out from class actions and keep these claims out of court altogether. They force every single person who is underpaid $10 a week to negotiate their settlement one-on-one, and again, sometimes in a state that's far away. It's really unfair. It's designed to prevent class actions and to prevent fair payouts from court settlements. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Supreme Court has enforced uh, mandatory arbitration clauses vigorously for years. In a series of five to four decisions, we talked about epic systems last term. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court has said these are enforceable, that an employer can literally just send around an email to everyone one day that says, by working here, you agree to mandatory arbitration, and if you don't agree, then you can quit. Uh, The Supreme Court has upheld those. This case, however, New Prime, dealt with an exception that's in the federal law that governs arbitration that involves uh, transportation workers. And this case specifically involved truckers. And the arbitration law actually excludes transportation workers uh, from mandatory arbitration if they have a contract, uh, if, they, if they are working uh, as, as basically employees. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the law doesn't explain what it means to be working in employment uh, for a company. It doesn't say if that means you are on the payroll or if you are a contractor. And so a bunch of truck companies, specifically trucking companies, mm-hmm. have misclassified hundreds of thousands of their truckers, refused to call them full-fledged employees, and instead classified them as contractors, and then said that they aren't subject to this exemption, and so they can be forced into arbitration because they are mere contractors. Uh, if they aren't real employees, then they don't get this benefit. So they're contractors, they're not actual employees, so they they don't get the right to uh, a 
class action suit. That was the argument that was struck down by the Supreme Court. But before you tell me how this was resolved here, I, I just want to underscore this case, uh, as you describe it, New Prime is the company, New Prime versus Oliveira. Dominic Oliveira, he was a guy who was required to complete 10,000 miles of hauling freight for New Prime for free while they called him an apprentice. Then he had to complete another 30,000 miles as a, quote, trainee, and he was only paid $4 an hour. And then he finally became a full-fledged driver, but they said he was a contractor rather than an employee, and that meant that he had to, what, buy his own gas and pay for it from one of the new prime stores, by the way, but that th those costs were deducted from his paycheck, and he would sometimes, and this is just amazing to me, sometimes the paycheck would be a negative. He would actually owe them money for working for the company? Yes, that is exactly how this worked. This was a scheme, right? This is not something that just sort of naturally fell into place. This was a company trying to exploit an ambiguity in the law to screw over workers. By classifying him as a contractor, they forced him to lease the truck, buy all of the equipment from their own store, uh, and then deducted it from his paycheck, which meant he was sometimes literally paying the company to work for them. They would, he would owe them money every month. Uh, and, and it's just an extraordinary yeah. abuse of labor. But, you know, if he were in a different kind of uh, setting, if he were not a transportation worker, the court would have just said, yeah, arbitration all the way. You don't get a class action, even though there are tens of thousands of other truckers similarly situated and hundreds of thousands of other people in different transportation jobs like uh, train, uh, freight, uh, mm -hmm. and shipping that uh, are in a similar situation. And so the, the resolution of this case, which was, again, quite a surprise to me, was that the court said, no, this law does not make a distinction between contractors and employees. The conception of employment in 1925, when the law was passed, uh, makes no distinction between contractors and employees. Mm -hmm. They are one and the same in the eyes of the law. And so that instantly rendered this entire scheme basically illegal. And now uh, Oliveira is going to have uh, probably a huge class action settlement because the company knows it broke the law. It broke the law because it thought that it would never have a court enforce the law yeah. because it thought it could just handle all this through arbitration. Wow. And so uh, good, uh, I guess, for these workers who are involved in interstate commerce that this particular law applies to, not so much for everyone else who's getting similarly ripped off but does not come under this statute. Uh, last question on this point, uh, credit to Neil Gorsuch here and his originalist interpretation of the meaning of the word uh, employment back in, uh, in 1925 when this uh, particular act, the Federal Arbitration Act, was, uh, was conceived? Does he get points for intellectual honesty there, at least? Yeah, I, I think he does. Uh, I also think more so the advocates who work this case on behalf of Oliveira are the ones who get the most credit because they perfected what I call the Gorsuch brief, where they basically just spent page after page digging into dictionaries from the 1800s and the early 1900s, <laughs> tracing the root of this word through Anglo-Saxon and Norman language evolution, <laughs> just painstakingly proving 
that in 1925, nobody thought that this law would not apply to contractors. And it worked. I don't think it's going to work every time. But those are the hoops you sort of have to jump through to get Gorsuch on board. You have to mount this hyper-technical textualist argument to win his vote. And this time, happily, it did work. Wow. Uh, Okay. That's some good news, at least partially for now. And and the fact that the uh, court uh, decided unanimously on anything right now is, is news in and of itself. Mark, uh, sit tight for a second. I'm running a little late here, so let me take a quick break, and we will, yes, in fact, finally come back and talk about Donald Trump's nominee for Attorney General, William Barr, with my guest today, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com writing in a piece at Slate this week with Dahlia Lithwick, my guest today, Mark Joseph Stern. Uh, Mark, you uh, the, the piece ingeniously titled, by the way, Low Bar. You cite a uh, Monday New York Times article which reports that Trump's attorney general nominee Bill Barr is, quote, likely to be confirmed because Republicans control the Senate and because defeating him would leave in place the acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker, a Trump loyalist whose installation in that role Democrats see as illegitimate and a threat to Mueller. But you and Dahlia argue that there are a number of reasons to be very wary of confirming Trump's uh, AG nominee and that Democrats should be cautious about voting for him if only if they're only doing it to replace Trump's wildly unqualified acting AG, Matt Whitaker. Before I get uh, your take on some of the points that came up during Tuesday's confirmation hearings in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, Uh, What were or are some of your concerns about Barr going into the hearing that you think Democrats should be wary of before we even heard his testimony in response to senators on Tuesday? Right. So my main concern is that Barr has clearly been auditioning for this job for about a year and a half. Uh, And you touched on this earlier. He wrote this 20-page memo, totally unsolicited, circulated it around, uh, basically speculating that Robert Mueller's uh, alleged theory uh, of obstruction of justice on Trump's part uh, is bogus and uh, not in accordance with the law. Really strange to me that he would sort of hypothesize what Mueller's theory might be and then spend 20 pages uh, tearing it down and then circulate it among government officials. There's really only one reason you would do that. It's because you want a job. It was basically a job application. Uh, and I find it very disturbing that he felt, well, that's how I'm going to get this gig is by attacking Mueller, who Barr claims to be a friend. I, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, also, I think it's very obvious that Barr 
takes a wildly expansive view of executive power and mm-hmm. authority. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, his urging George H.W. Bush to pardon the main players in the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, he doesn't want foreign policy to be, quote, criminalized. I mean, that is right out of the pro-Trump playbook right now, right? That everything Trump may or may not have done, that what his cronies did, that that was just business as usual, that it is uh, overreach and abuse for prosecutors to even be considering it, uh, let alone charging them. Uh, and, and Barr seems to line up perfectly with that. So even though he will say things, he said things at this hearing like, well, I respect Mueller, you know, I respect his investigation, I'm going to let it go. It sounds to me like Mueller's entire investigation goes against the grain of what Barr believes and has believed for a very long time. So it's difficult for me to to really believe that Trump nominated this guy for any other reason than to try to put the kibosh on the Mueller probe. It sure does seem like it, and it sure does seem like it it may work, at least as far as uh, getting him into the job. Let me play you uh, a couple of uh, clips from uh, the uh, hearings on Tuesday, and I will get your hot take on them. Uh, First one, we we, uh, played a, a piece of yesterday from Pat Leahy, a Democratic senator from Vermont, asking Barr whether he would accept the recommendation of career ethics professionals at the DOJ as to whether he should recuse himself from overseeing the Mueller probe based on that memo in which he gave his opinions about it last year. So will you commit, if confirmed, to both seeking and following the advice of the department's career ethics officials? on whether you must recuse from the special counsel's investigation. Uh, I I will seek uh, the advice of the career uh, ethics uh, personnel, but under the regulations, I make the decision as the head of the agency as to my own recusal. So I I certainly would consult with them, and, and at the end of the day, I would make a decision Uh, in good faith based on uh, the laws and the facts that are uh, evident at that time. Which, by the way, is exactly what Matt Whitaker did. Uh, The ethics officials told him he should recuse from overseeing the Mueller probe, and he said, okay, thanks for your opinion. I'm not going to recuse. Uh, Barr later insisted during an exchange, I think it was with Kamala Harris, uh, that it would be his judgment and his judgment alone, not those DOJ ethics professionals uh, that would uh, be the final determination. Uh, Mark, should that alone be disqualifying for this nominee? Well, I certainly wouldn't vote for him if I were a senator, uh, and I don't really think he gave any compelling reason for other Democratic senators to vote for him. Uh, this should not have been a difficult promise for him to make uh, if he does not think that he has an ethical conflict overseeing the Mueller probe, he should happily say yes. If he does think he has an ethical conflict and he is an upright and honest public servant, he should also say yes, because he should follow their advice. They understand ethics better than he does. Uh, DOJ ethics officials have less political motivation. They are career public servants. The fact that he was not able to just say, yeah, of course I will follow their advice, suggests that he will take the exact same view that Matthew Whitaker has done in really his only notable move in office so far as acting attorney general, which was to say, screw you guys, say whatever you want, but I'm sticking here and I'm overseeing this investigation. It is a, a depressing fact that it seems... Jeff Sessions 
had more political and ethical savvy in recusing himself from this probe than both Whitaker and Barr do. So I don't understand. This was not like a really serious major concession that Leahy asked Barr to make. This was not a make-or-break massive, like, you must do this or it will ruin everything. This was simple. This was, look, follow the ethics advice, okay? And Barr said, no, I'm not tying myself down to that. I'm not blocking myself in. That is very disturbing to me. It was disturbing to me, too, and it wasn't the only thing. Um, This is uh, perhaps, maybe, I don't know, maybe a harder question for some, not for me at this point, but Senator Richard Blumenthal uh, of Connecticut, Democrat, asked whether a sitting president, if he's found to have committed criminal offenses uh, should or even can lawfully, legally, constitutionally be indicted while in office, uh, despite the existing opinions from the DOJ's Office of Legal Counsel over the years, which argue that a president cannot be indicted, which, uh, for the record, I personally find wildly flawed. Here's that conversation. The question is whether the president could be prosecuted while in office. I happen to believe that he could be, even if the trial were postponed until he is out of office, but because the statute of limitations might run for any other number of reasons, a prosecution would be appropriate. Would you agree? Well, uh, but, uh, you know, for 40 years, the position of the uh, executive branch has been you can't indict a sitting president. Well, it's the tradition based on a couple of OLC opinions But now it is potentially an imminent, indeed immediate possibility, and I'm asking you for your opinion now, if possible, but if not now, perhaps at some point. are you asking me if I if I would change that that policy? I'm asking you what your view is right now. I you know, I I actually haven't read those opinions in a long time. Um but I see no reason to to change them. So uh, he's fine with that. No indictment of a sitting president, no matter what, I guess, no matter even if a president goes out and, as Trump uh, once said, shoots someone on Fifth, uh, on Fifth Avenue in broad daylight. Uh, your response to, uh, to that, uh, Mark Joseph Stern? I mean, mainly the dishonesty jumps out at me. Uh, the idea that, oh, well, you know, I, ha- I kind of have to think about it. I'm not sure. He-, he did this waffling tone every time he was hit with a real question. Uh, and-, and it's just such such nonsense, because, of course, he has beefed up on the question of whether a president can be indicted. He is getting a job interview to be attorney general of the United States. He knows the public controversies. The fact that he sort of pretended to be up in the air about it a little bit, uh, and then eventually said, well, no, I'm probably not going to revisit those OLC memos. That just drips uh, with dishonesty and lack of candor. I felt a similar issue when uh, Maisie Hirono asked him about birthright citizenship. And he said, oh, well, you know, I really haven't studied it. I haven't thought about it. It's the first line of the 14th Amendment. And you served as attorney general for two years. Uh, th- this, is, this is just too, too much to take for, for my uh, weak soul at this stage. <laughs> so I, I think that is the bigger problem. I mean, the question of whether a president can be indicted is one thing. It's a, it's a real live debate. I think there's merit on both sides. Of it, I lean toward the the idea that he can be. I see nothing in the Constitution that prevents it. Mm-hmm. But the idea that Barr is sort of uncertain about it—that is BS. 
yeah, it seems so. I mean, especially since he gave uh, 18, what is it, 18, 19 uh, single-spaced pages of thoughts to the uh, to the Robert Mueller uh, probe and, uh, you know, uh, uh, saying that it was uh, probably, possibly unconstitutional and then goes to admit that well he didn't have any information on what was actually being investigated at the time he gave a lot of thought to that but not to the constitution that he was at one point in charge of overseeing as attorney general it is somewhat difficult to believe uh but these are troubling issues i think above and beyond uh how he will treat the Mueller probe one more here for you mark uh that i have time for uh, this is an issue that i suspect is of interest uh to both you and i for various reasons uh senator amy klobuchar of uh, minnesota asked Barr. What seems like a simple enough question to me, whether journalists can be jailed for simply doing their job. My dad was a reporter, so I grew up uh, knowing the importance of a free press. Uh, we obviously have the tragic case of a journalist uh, who worked right here at the Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi, and it's a particular concern. Um, so I want to ask you something I ask uh, Attorney General Sessions. If you're confirmed, uh, will the Justice Department jail reporters for doing their jobs? Um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I know there are guidelines in place, and I, I can conceive of, of situations where, uh, you know, as a, as a last resort uh, uh, and, and where a news organization has run through a red flag or something like that, knows that they're putting out stuff that will hurt the country, there might be a there. There could be a situation where where someone would be held in contempt. But well, Attorney General Sessions had said he was going to look at change, potentially changing those rules at one point. So I'd like you to maybe respond in writing to this because that was very concerning. So, Mark, A, that was a pretty long pause there before he answered the question. And uh, B, he eventually comes around to saying he could see situations where people in the press could be jailed, quote, for putting out stuff that would hurt the country. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, this is a this is a sensitive issue for people who want to work in the Justice Department, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, because I don't think either side has a particularly glorious record here. Uh, the standard answer is that you say, look, I respect the First Amendment, uh, and I generally respect reporter confidentiality. If there is uh, some kind of incredibly important information that we direly need, we may take steps to obtain it pursuant to law. And, and at that point, I think that the, the correct response from Amy Klobuchar would be, well, that's your right now because there's no federal shield law for reporters. Uh, and then she should go to the floor and, and urge a federal shield law. Uh, th this is not some sort of mystical, oh, well, it's a balance of harms. You know, does it hurt the country or not? No. Reporting that hurts the country, reporting that harms the national interest, reporting that tells state secrets, that is freedom of expression. And reporters get to do that stuff. What Klobuchar was talking about was a very specific kind of issue here, which
which is when the government basically pins down reporters and said, tell us your sources or we'll put you in prison. Uh, and the fact that Barr took this incredibly expansive view, oh, if they run through a red flag, you know, if they're harming the country, that is not the correct answer here. There's just a right and wrong answer here, and he gave the wrong one. So I do not see in William Barr a man with great respect for freedom of the press. Which I think is uh, one of the things you were warning about in your piece at Slate with uh, Dahlia Lithwick uh, titled Low Bar. We will um, we'll link over to that uh, when we post today's show. Uh, very quickly, I'm running incredibly late, Mark, uh, but uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, what should we make of her absence from the court uh, this week as she recuperates from lung cancer surgery? Are you as freaked out? by that as uh, many sort of justifiably are and also did you see the uh, great new film on the basis of sex which tells the story of the young ruth bader ginsburg essentially becoming the notorious rbg uh, i have not seen it yet i very much look forward to seeing it um get your kleenexes health... get your kleenexes ready that's all okay, I want. Okay, okay i will i you all know right. and i love army hammer so right. i'm sure it'll be wonderful <laughs> uh, on her health Look, this is, this is a very painful surgery. The reality is that this is one of the most painful recovery processes for any kind of surgery uh, that, is, that, that, that uh, anyone can get done, let alone an 85-year-old. It is difficult for Justice Ginsburg to be moving around, to be mobile and walking to the bench or to events. She needs to continue to rest and work from home. Uh, this is not a she is secretly very ill and everyone is hiding it. This is a poor Justice Ginsburg had really painful surgery and the recovery process is slow because it's always slow and it's even slower when you're 85. <sighs> we need her back soon. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern uh, covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, and much more for Slate.com. Follow his work over there. It's always a must read. And follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Great talking with you, Mark. And uh, once again, Happy New Year, my friend. Happy New Year. I hope to talk to you very soon. You will, whether you like it or not. All right, quick break, and we are back with, uh, boy, a whole bunch of messes, uh, at least those that we have time for. Next on the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Just one fine mess after another. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doy in there. There are a lot of messes that uh, we could have and, in fact, did foresee with this president. Oh, indeed. But canceling the State of the Union, a situation where we would come to canceling the State of the Union address, that's not one of them I might have guessed. Yeah, I would never have thought that would come up. But it has. Uh, the ongoing partial government shutdown, which is now the longest in our nation's history, thanks to Donald Trump's demand for $5.7 billion to begin construction on a border wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for. That shutdown is now throwing the State of the Union address into doubt. 
House Speaker, uh, and I might be putting that nicely, I don't know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi asked Donald Trump to forego his January 29 speech that she had previously invited him to deliver. She has uh, said, essentially said it's we're not going to do it. As uh, presidents have for decades prior to uh, recent times, they would deliver it in writing. That still remains an option, but she has uh, uninvited him, essentially, from the annual joint session of Congress that has become a tradition for delivering State of the Union addresses. She is expressing doubts that the hobbled government can provide adequate security for the gathering. In a letter to Trump today, Pelosi said that with both the Secret Service and the Homeland Security Department entangled in the shutdown, the president should speak to Congress at another time, or he should just deliver the address in writing. When asked today if this meant that the address, at least for now, is being canceled, Democratic House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said, yep. So the State of the Uh, Union is off. The State of the Union is off. What if the president, I don't know, responds with, no, he wants to keep the date? Any chance that he could convince you otherwise? Uh, no. <laughs> well, that's pretty clear. And it may or may not be up to him if the president decides he wants to come over to uh, to Congress and give an, an address. Yes, traditionally, it is the Speaker of the House that invites the president, but who knows uh, what would happen if Trump said, I'm coming anyway. You've already invited me. I'm coming over. Nancy Pelosi left unclear what would happen in that case. It, it takes a joint resolution of the House and Congress to extend the official invitation and to set the stage for this. Pelosi told reporters when asked how she would respond if Trump still intends to come over, she said, we'll have to have a security evaluation, but that would mean diverting resources. I don't know how that could happen. To uh, Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, uh, the matter was less about security than what he sees as Pelosi feeling she has the upper hand in the budget standoff. He said uh, she's talking about canceling the State of the Union. This is not somebody who's feeling any pressure, said Johnson. I think Republicans are getting the lion's share of the pressure. Now, the government shutdown will be almost a month old as of this coming weekend, with some 800,000 government workers either furloughed or working without pay. But millions of Americans are being directly affected in countless ways that actually I had hoped to get into here, but we ran a little bit long with Mark. But uh, you noted a, a response from uh, was <laughs> yes. it from this was a uh, it was a pretty snappy response. Yeah. I thought of it's from the wife of Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio. Her name is Connie Schultz. She is a journalism professor at Kent State University, yeah. and she called it parenting 101. Throw a tantrum. Lose your TV time. Well, I guess he's uh, lost his TV time. Maybe. Frankly, I can't see this. uh, Well, I was going to say I can't see it holding. It seems unimaginable that they would uninvite the president and that this president wouldn't throw a fit and show up anyway. Yes, but we are in unprecedented times. So pretty much everything seems up in the air these days. 
Unprecedented or unprecedented? <laughs> what did you say exactly? I said unprecedented, oh, okay. but the other one could probably work as well when it comes to maybe postponing the State of the Union. Uh, as I mentioned, I had, yeah, some... Uh, some uh, fallout from the shutdown that I had hoped to get to today, uh, but uh, we'll have to put that off to another day. The shutdown, meanwhile, continues with no no sign of a, of a way to end it in sight. But there is still more madness and confusion and, sadly, tragedy today coming out of the Middle East. A suicide bomber uh, bombing. Claimed by the Islamic State, or ISIS, killed four Americans, two U.S. soldiers and two American citizens in northern Syria on Wednesday. This less than a month after President Trump had declared that he was pulling all U.S. forces out of the country immediately. And that uh, and declaring at the same time that ISIS had been defeated the attack, which also wounded th- wounded three U.S. service members, along with um, with others in the strategic northeastern town of Manbij, complicates what had already become a messy withdrawal plan. The AP reports with Trump's senior advisors disagreeing with the decision to withdraw and then offering an evolving timetable for the removal of the approximately 2,000 U.S. troops in Syria, and it underscores Pentagon assertions that the Islamic State, despite what the president says, is uh, is still a threat capable of deadly attacks. Now, it was uh, before Christmas, I think, where uh, Donald Trump said we are pulling out of Syria. That led to the um, Defense Secretary General James Mattis resigning at the time. And then after we came back from the holidays, after the uh, beginning of the year, Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, said that the American withdrawal from Syria is actually conditioned on defeating the remnants of the Islamic State group and on Turkey assuring that the uh, safety of U.S. Ally, uh, allied uh, Kurdish fighters uh, would continue. So, in other words, Bolton said, yeah, we're leaving, but only after all of the things that critics of Trump's initial announcement before Christmas had warned would happen uh, if Trump withdrew troops immediately. Uh, it, just a mess. Uh, Bolton had said that there was no timetable for the pullout that Donald Trump said was happening immediately. Bolton had told reporters this was just after January 6th, uh, Bolton told reporters in Jerusalem that there are objectives that we want to accomplish that condition the w- withdrawal. Those conditions, he said at the time, included defeating what's left of ISIS. But, you know, Trump said ISIS had been defeated. Apparently not. As many as 16 were killed in this attack in Syria today, including a number of fighters with the Syrian Democratic Forces who have fought alongside the Americans against the Islamic State, according to officials uh, and to the U.K.-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. U.S. Central Command said one of the American civilians uh, who was killed was employed by the Defense Department. The other was a contractor. The names of the American victims were being withheld until their families were notified. The Islamic State group's claim of responsibility for the attack on Wednesday calls into question Trump's claim that ISIS has been defeated in Syria. 
his stated reason for pulling the uh, 2,000 American troops out of there. Back in uh, December, in announcing his intention to bring back the U.S. troops, he tweeted, We have defeated ISIS in Syria. We are going to bring the troops back now, in all caps. And then today, hours after the ISIS attack and the deaths of four Americans, after this was all known, Vice President Mike Pence, in a speech at the State Department, again, after the attack, after the uh, information had already been made public about the death of four Americans, he declared in this speech at the State Department that the caliphate has crumbled and that ISIS had been defeated. Seriously. We promised under this president's leadership to take the fight to radical Islamic terrorists on our terms on their soil. The president and I couldn't be more proud. Thanks to the leadership of this commander-in-chief and the courage and sacrifice of our armed forces, we're now actually able to begin to hand off the fight against ISIS in Syria to our coalition partners, and we are bringing our troops home. The caliphate has crumbled, and ISIS has been defeated. Just kind of amazing to me. I don't I don't know that he said anything about the deaths of these he uh, did not. Americans. He did not mention the Americans at all, and it was confirmed that he was informed prior to making that speech. Prior to declaring that ISIS has been defeated. Exactly. He also didn't speak. He was uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, State Department officials there who are now being forced to work without pay because of the shutdown. He didn't mention anything about the shutdown either. Uh, Just incredible. Again, uh, Mike Pence's uh, remarks there uh, at the State Department after the U.S. military announced that American soldiers were among those killed in Manbij, Manbij, Syria today. What a fine mess. Just incredible. All right. Got to get out. Uh, Thank you uh, to my producer, Desi Doyen, today, of course, to my guest, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, who is always fantastic, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is uh, always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. It's always good to hear from you. And I hope you will find, follow, and share Uh, All of our works and all of my snark, uh, (laughs) as it happens, over on the Twitters and the Facebooks. You can find me there at The Brad Blog. We are coming up on the 15th anniversary of bradblog.com. Amazingly enough, we could not have gotten this far, just barely, uh, without your help. And those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. That help and support is still greatly needed, so uh, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help the Bradblog keep going and to help Desi and me stay on your public airwaves. All right, that is it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.